0: Welcome
1: back to the Ownership Economy. This time round, we're delving into the worlds of cryptography, privacy, and AI. What is the promise of NFTs for building a user and creator-owned economy? We dive into these topics and more with Ownership Economy Summit speaker, David Pakman. David started his career in tech at Apple, and has been in venture capital for over 20 years, at prominent funds, Venrock and CoinFund. He was among the first VCs to realize what was coming in crypto and moved in early to back teams such as Dapper Labs, Threebox, and Rarible. David has been on the bleeding edge of the thinking in this space with respect to user ownership of data, creator ownership and IP, and the building of an ownership economy. We hope you enjoy the episode.
0: Hey David, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, you've been a managing partner at CoinFund. You've had a long career in venture. You're an entrepreneur before. I recently watched your fireside chat at Masari, which was I think about a couple months ago, Um, and really fascinated by where you started and where you've ended up. So I think a good one for us to start with is just, how did you get into venture?
1: Oh, ah, well, great! Well, thanks for uh, having me here and uh, getting to talk to you. I enjoyed our time at our, on our own panel together uh, earlier this year. Um, I I entered technology. I was a computer science engineer, and I went to work at Apple in the Bay Area. And uh, I met a lot of unbelievably impressive people. Apple's always been a company that's great at hiring. They were all older than I was, and 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 um, you know, I started as a you know little boy out of college, and just. They became mentors of me and sort of the the path in the Valley was sort of work at a big company like Apple, meet a lot of people, then leave and go to a startup or two or three. And if they're successful and you're done being startup executive, you know, move into venture. So I just sort of followed that path. It's what I wanted to do because I knew a lot of venture folks who were really impressive. So I followed that path. You know, I, I worked at Apple for a bunch of years. I joined a startup and I started a company or two. And uh, those were successful. And and then I ended up uh, at Venrock about 15 years ago. Didn't know anything about being a venture capitalist. I mean, I had raised money from them and had them on my boards, but, uh, you know, had never learned the, the trade. Um, and so Venrock was a wonderful place to really learn it from an established firm with a great process and extremely high bar and, and really amazing venture capital partners. And, um, investors. so I I learned venture there and um, spent 13 years there and you know I'm sure we'll talk about the deviation into crypto but uh, that's where that's how it all happened.
0: Deviation is a funny way to put it. It just sounds you know it has almost has like a negative undertone. It's funny. Um, well I did actually want to ask you you, you before we get into crypto because we obviously're going to do it on this pod, we've done it at the summit. I would really like to get into just before we get dip our toes in that. Uh, you moved into you moved it to BenRock, one of the top firms in Silicon Valley. You know, investor in Apple, and in a bunch of stuff. So um, I would just like to know for yourself, like uh, what what were the big highlights and takeaways for you there? Because I feel like when you make it to a place like BenRock, it's really rare for something like crypto to come along and you know, I I guess hijack your attention. So maybe you can give us a little bit of what you saw develop over the years at BenRock, because you've been, you've been here for, you know, pre-internet 1.0, inter- internet 1.0, the, the big, uh you know, the um early 2000s internet bubble as well. What were some of the
1: highlights and lowlights on the way? I think uh, first Venrock's, um reputation as one of the oldest venture firms in the world, because, because it was started by Lawrence Rockefeller, you know, back before there really was anything called venture capital. I think um, misleads one to believe that it's a super conservative place. Uh, it's not, it's a it's a firm that um, allows for the permissibility to make wild bets um, because that's the only way to get big outcomes in crypto. And um, so, and the reason it survived and I think prospered as a top firm is because it continues to make really wild bets. You know, what, what I learned there was the only way to make any money in in venture is to be a non-consensus investor you, you have to find things especially at the early stage things that you believe that others don't believe and then you have to be right it's somewhat easy to be non-consensus just say the opposite of what everyone else is saying but but you also have to be right so um i i learned to you know go deep in certain areas and develop the strength of one's convictions and make bets and and crypto really is one of those areas that even to this day remains a non-consensus. Um, investing sector of tech. I mean, it was maybe in vogue for a couple years of the raging bull market, um, you know, in th- nine, t- 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, but it's certainly out now. And most traditional venture firms don't have anyone focused on crypto. And those of us still focused are at crypto and crypto native firms. So um, what I learned at, at Benrock was that you can do very well if you are able to pursue non-consensus ideas that turn out to be right, and I'm fortunate in that I made a few of those bets. Um, but but that's that's the main takeaway from you know 13 years there. There's a, there's hundreds of other takeaways about how to judge uh, founders and their personality types, and and how to take a long-term investing view because venture is not short-term, and how not to get distracted by noise in the markets in the short and medium term, and to focus on the big. Long-term things, and and then also how to build a partnership that allows for disagreement but still support of each other. So there's a lot. There was a lot I learned there.
0: You touched on a really on a lot of key threads, principles. Even I'd say, you know, I've been in this. I've been an angel uh, for a short period of time and venture, even shorter, just two years. I'm learning every day. But I think some of those things, just some of the things you pointed out, are like timeless, right? And they kind of point toward. I guess on the outside, what I've seen from how CoinFund develops conviction. So maybe that's a good spot then for us. You know, you mentioned things like how do you believe how do you how do you get to develop conviction in non-consensus things that are that also have some likelihood of being true? How do you how do you actually kind of go against how do you do something when everyone else is saying it's wrong and stupid? <laughs> right? Like that's oh, right. Totally. <laughs> I've been in, I've been in space only seven years. So I'm not like a crypto OG necessarily, but uh it's been tough one. So I think it's been tough for me. I want to ask you, how did you get into crypto? That must've been tough given the, the path.
1: Well, I point out that you're already good at it because if you're still in crypto right now, then you've developed um, some set of convictions that the market has not persuaded you to drop uh, because the, the market certainly, at least in until the last two months, has not been supportive of the idea that crypto can become mainstream or can be adopted widely or can build Many trillions of dollars of economic value. Now, maybe that's changing again, but I, I try to keep my eye off the short-term price movements and really think about what's the evidence, you know, in, in the long term. And, and so the, the question really about like first, I think, how do you develop a non-consensus um, point of view? I don't, I don't have like a way of saying, look all right, I, clean sheet of paper, let me come up with a, a piece of non-consensus belief." <laughs> But as you go deep on any subsector of tech that you're interested in, um, it'll become pretty obvious to you about what everyone else believes, because that's where most of the money will be going in. It's where most of the startups will be started. It's where most of the investors will be placing bets. Certainly tech has a very herd mentality uh, in its sort of early and mid-stage investing. Um, So you can sort of see what the market consensus is about where tech is going based on where those bets are being made. And if you go really deep and you really learn a subsector, either because you're a technologist and you're going down to the metal and really learning, um, you know, being a user of the technology or the architecture, if you're talking with engineers and founders about what it is that they're doing and why, you can start to have a view about where things are going. And you might have a view that's different than others. Another way to to approach like how does one have a non-consensus belief is to look at what's currently out of favor. So one good example there was when I met Michael Dubin and, and the science team, which backed him in the seed round when he founded Dollar Shave Club. I knew a lot already about subscription businesses because I had run one when I was the CEO of eMusic, And you learn the basics about, it's not, nothing super rocket science-y, I mean, it's pretty basic, you know, what is your cost of customer acquisition and what's your churn rate? What's your LTV? TV? But once you understand that dynamic, you start to realize there's kind of like some first principles or like business laws of physics that that govern subscription businesses. But at that time of Dollar Shave Club, like there had, there had already been like a hundred subscription box businesses, and most of them had been people invested in, and then sort of threw them away. They weren't they weren't that interesting. So when DSC came around. It was kind of the baby had been thrown out with the bathwater. Like it was not in vogue to invest in a new consumer packaged goods subscription business. But having run a subscription business, the single thing that determines the, the success is the churn rate. And the churn rate was unbelievably low. And the um, market size was really, really high, like almost every man shaves. And um, the large market, uh, the churn rate was ridiculously low. And it was a category of high consumability, like people use it every day. So um, it had a bunch of attributes that made it likely to be very successful, at least in my opinion. But no one else was interested in that space. So I had a non-conventional view there, a non-consensus view. We led the Series A and the Series B. There was no one else willing to lead the B. Yeah. And you know, long story short, the math worked out well. We. Sold it for a billion dollars to Unilever. So, so you can have a a view that's different from the market uh, in in different ways.
0: Yeah, and I think I it's funny too because I didn't expect us to talk about Dollar Shave Club, but I do think that you know not to really. to blow smoke up your ass david but i think that is really definitely one of my favorite bets that i've seen in the space i studied the hell out of that thing like seven i think seven years ago or that that, when that acquisition happened just because it was all the talk in in tech at that time it was like you know the the strategy fellow um who right did a super deep dive into it and he was getting into stuff like you know the key unit here wasn't like uh you know uh it it wasn't razors it was blades per something or other and i was just fascinated because i was sitting here Thinking, like, how do you get a venture outcome out of this? It was probably one of the first times that I come up against a really truly non consensus one, just because, like, like you said, this was 2016. I came across in 2016. That was a time when people were like, oh, what's, you know, what's ad tech? What's ad, What's next for ad tech? What's mobile video doing? What's gaming? And then you, you had all these zero, you know, zero marginal cost technologies. And then along comes, like, what? So that, that's a really great example. And I think it's so, nice of you. <laughs> Taking that from Dollar Shave Club, and then getting into crypto, what was that like? Like, and I'd love to get, I'd love to get into the specifics a little bit, just because you know everyone see. Oh, you know, I saw the promise of X, Y, and Z, and you've talked about this before. But if if there was one particular thing that stood out, or an interaction, or something that came across where you're like, this is the future.
1: Yeah, there's two or three things. So uh, the way I drifted into crypto honestly was one of our uh, vice presidents at Menrock, um, we had been looking at Bitcoin a little bit, trying to learn about it. And um, a vice president handed me the Ethereum white paper and said, this is different. This is really interesting. You should read this. And he had a technical background. And so he helped me think through the idea of a, you know, decentralized compute network, like a programmable blockchain. And that felt like, okay, that's very different thing than like just, you know, is this um, a trustless, you know, money ledger transfer machine? Um, it just felt like it had much larger implications. And so it was time to get serious and start to do some research. But I turned to some of my partners at Benrock who who understood financial markets. Like I don't have an MBA. I never worked on wall street, didn't understand capital markets, don't understand yield curves, bonding curves. Like, you know, it's just not my expertise. I'm, I'm a computer scientist. And Software guy, so um, I asked for some help, and and honestly, the the consensus view about blockchains was that it was for piracy and you know Silk Road and all that, and so not interested was kind of the response I got. So if I wanted to learn about this, I had to learn myself. Fortunately, I found the Coin Fund guys as some tutors to help me and help me learn more. A couple of years later, but I did what I could do to learn. When I started mining Ethereum. That seemed like a smart economic decision if you believe that could be valuable but it also helped me learn about what is a node and how does a node operate. And uh, over time you came to see like, first of all, the the technology here is super rich and, uh, and profoundly interesting. Yes, it's based on Merkle trees and some old uh, computer science concepts, but the marrying them together into a globally decentralized permissionless compute network uh, was really impressive. Um, so I, I just got excited about the technologies um, success at producing something novel and then you're confronted with the question was how many other people care about this and is it going to be a developer platform and what are the use cases and boy it felt to me like the answer was yes to a lot of those like it's really interesting there's a lot of people interested there's a lot of interesting use cases but how long will it take was an unanswered question and so i just kind of loosely watched it but by 2016 2017 it was obvious that something was happening we had the ico crunch we had a few of our portfolio companies say, hey, I think we're gonna add some crypto components to our business. We think a token could be useful as a a loyalty mechanism or an incentive mechanism. So that, that was when I had to get serious. And just to make the long story short, I think what really struck me was this has profound implications and most other people I know are uninterested in spending any time in it. And that's an arbitrage, right? It's like, well, why are they uninterested? If you ask them, it was usually because it was just dismissed on its face without any, any math or any thought. It's like it's piracy or it's a scam. I even had a conversation with someone I have a huge amount of respect for. It's one of the best investors I know. And um, I was talking about you know going full-time into crypto. And this person said, I don't know anything about it. I think it's a great thing for you. You've already had some success in it, um, but I think it's a total fraud. And I said, can I just play that sentence back to you? You said you don't know anything about it, but you think it's a total fraud. How can you make the judgment that it's a fraud if you don't know anything about it? And I think that explains so much about why crypto is dismissed because no one's really gone deep on it to make that conclusion. And that I think is the ARB. And that's why there's a great opportunity here, right? That's why this is not consensus.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great way to put it. Because my, I was really gonna dig into the why because I think that a lot of folks in our space when they get here, they almost some of them have a deep why, some of them others, some some others don't, right? But it almost feels like you touched on the why for yourself, though. It's really just it's something you're touching on the bounds of like. There's a lot of potential here. I don't see how this can't attract some developers as like a shelling point, pull them in, really be a developer platform. And there's going to be some kind of value that flows through this because there's nothing. If you're talking about Ethereum white paper at the time. Definitely, like people had sort of thought of smart contracts before, but like not quite in this way, and combining so many pieces together. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But am I putting words in your mouth? Is there no? Is that's there a that's why? very well.
1: That's very well said. I would say over time, what motivated me even more, and it's what really motivates me a lot now, is seeing the the cost of the centralization of Web two. You know, we invest in a lot of different software companies that build on top of some platform, right? In the in the like 2009, 2010, 2011 companies were building on top of the Facebook API or building on top of the Twitter API. I mean, I remember looking at TweetDeck and some of the Twitter apps. Well, it's a good thing we didn't invest in any of those because they all got rug pulled by Twitter. You know, they who turned yep. the API off and basically killed almost every company. Or it's a good thing we didn't invest in a lot of the Facebook social apps because Facebook just eventually turned that API off. So when you see that happen over and over again, you're like, well, wait a second, developers don't like to get rug pulled. Uh, What alternative exists? Where can you build a software company that doesn't have platform risk? And to me right now, you know, blockchains are the answer to that. It's it's a large globally decentralized API that's immutable, but it's permissionless. No one can say you can't build here. No one can say, hey, you're getting too big. We need to turn you off or we're changing our business model. The only way they get changed is through some you know, public improvement conversation, right? Where you vote or there's some governance structure. So that feels very refreshing to me. And I don't know that we've nearly reached the potential there, but in light of the dangers of centralization, that motivates me trying to see a, a large... Ecosystem of independent developers build on top of blockchains.
0: I think that's a really great segue because the other thing you know that we like to dig into, and you referenced it before with with respect to the summit, is that we are very much interested in how these tools can also, in the social world, um, reflect potentially new ownership primitives, new stakeholder governance, and you know mentioning something like you did here with the respect to centralization of platform risk. That if you could. Find, some, I'm sure there's some computer scientist or economist out there who's already computed this and said, here's what that curve looks like over time. Here are the variables and here's how I've measured it. But yeah, it gets, keeps getting worse and worse basically, right? Like every day someone comes along and says, uh, you know, we, we changed the Google algorithm and sorry, that, uh, that, that page that you, you used to get 300,000 just a day, I'm sorry, it's now 200, <laughs> right? And uh, good luck figuring out how that affects your revenue. So I think like changing, you know, kind of not changing, but really diving into this, going in this direction, um, I was looking at a little bit of the coin fund portfolio and I would love if you could pick maybe, you know, one to three examples, however we get, how many we get through that can really give people a deep understanding of how, you know, we, we, all know the centralization argument, Instagram, Facebook, all those folks, what does it look like? And what are what is the kind of opportunity first, of course, economic opportunity that you guys see. And then second, like, what, what does this lead to? Like what kind of world does it lead to?
1: Well, let's make a little bit of a contrast. So when the internet first commercialized like 95, 96, 97, the way you launched a website was you plugged a computer into the internet and you you put Apache on your computer and you had a website. And you didn't need anyone's permission to do that. All you needed was an IP connection. And you could buy that pretty much anywhere. And it was virtually impossible to be deplatformed because you were running your own website. Now, today, when you want to launch a website, you're probably using a platform like Wix or Squarespace or something like that, or you're building on top of AWS. And uh, and if you if you're not in the Google directory, you might as well not exist. Uh, plus, the website probably needs to be cached and needs to be a security layer on it to make it fast. So there's all these other centralization points. Who can make a decision to deplatform you, shut you off? So like, you, you we have this centralization risk. At CoinFund. We believe that there's value and concern with truly decentralized networks. When they're permissionless, anyone can build on them as Ethereum and the other layer ones are, but they're, and they're censorship resistant, people can't shut you off, but that lets the bad guys in too, right? And so you, there, it's, it's not a panacea to be decentralized. It presents its own set of challenges, but it, it does eliminate the centralization risk of, um, of people deciding to rug pull your company because they don't like how successful you're being. So we've invested on this theme. And one area that I know we have common belief in is the notion that creators can self-publish or digitize their electronic works, but get paid for them in a way that allows for scarcity and traceability and, um, um, you know, and really strong monetization, and that's NFTs. And so we, it, it does feel almost like we're going back to the original internet's promise, of any individual can publish something digital on the internet without anyone's permission. But now the monetization is different. It, it was very hard to put a toll booth up in front of your website. So hard that what people said is, well, we'll just throw advertising on It's the only way to make any money. No one wants <laughs> to pay a dollar to see my right. website, so I'll throw ads on. So what did what have we done around content in Web3, we've said, well, actually we can digitize the content, but also make it scarce. We can print 100 of them or one of them or 1,000 or 10,000 of them, and we can set a price for them and we can mint content as NFTs. And then they've got a resale value too, and they can trade on exchanges independent of what the owner says, and we can do royalties. So that sounded pretty exciting. So we've invested in a bunch of stuff around NFTs, which are mostly out of favor today, um, but are but are absolutely essential to the long term value of, of Web three, and we think will come back in a big big way. So we invested in Dapper Labs, the creators of CryptoKitties, and really the creator of the first NFT standard. And uh, they're effectively a studio that creates um, NFT ecosystems, or you know, intellectual property based um, uh, products that people can buy on on Web three. And they've uh, launched, you know nba top shot and nfl all day and and have a disney product now so they're doing basically collaborations with the world's biggest brands and bringing intellectual property to the blockchain and letting people buy own trade and and evolve that's exciting i think they are um certainly a company to watch they've been um uh they've had multiple successes and and they're certainly trying to you know duplicate that with with the current products in the market Another one that comes to oh, mind. Oh, sorry. sorry, one, one yeah,
0: second yeah. before you continue off of that. It's yeah. like, I think digging in a little bit on Dapper Labs could be interesting only because we also try to, you're not you're not one of the worst offenders. There are people who get so deep into the, the uh, you know, terminology and jargon of our space, but I think it'd be a good thing to take a second and just focus on like, you know, you mentioned things like uh, enabling scarcity, uniqueness, you know, creating markets around particular unique goods. Um, real quick nft is i think one of the worst terms ever but the only worst one is non-fungible this non-fungible token actually (laughs) so like like maybe maybe you could tell you pick one of these examples would be great for you for you know for our audience to understand like great you may you never even heard of nba top shot maybe you haven't heard of crypto kitties what is an nft
1: yeah fair enough uh i agree with you that crypto is the worst in picking consumer friendly names we we pick the most consumer unfriendly names we possibly can for everything absolutely it's terrible Uh, so an NFT, well, so, um, maybe it's helpful to say, like, if you go back uh, millennia to when artists created art, all, all of the art that they created was physical in nature, a, a painting, a sculpture, um, you know, an antique, uh, you know, ev- even anything of value, uh, jewelry, um, you know, wine it's all physical in nature. And so, uh, the easy way to monetize it is to sell the physical objects and you might produce one or more of them, and that's it. And then those physical objects have a resale value, or m- maybe high or low, but still the permission exists for the owner to resell it later. And that's how, um, as a species, we've consumed most of artistic expression is as physical objects. Well, starting around 1995, um, we digitized a lot of that words, text, um, music, pictures, video. And when we digitized it, we put it on the internet right away. So we started distributing it digitally and despite attempts through digital rights management to limit its ability to be copied, we largely were unsuccessful in doing that. And so when you can't limit the copying of infinite amount of copies of them, you can't really charge for it anymore because people can always just copy it. So we switched away from ownership models to access models where either it's free and an ad supported, or you pay per month or per year to sort of either rent the content or just sort of view it through an access model. And then if you stop paying, you, you go away and you don't have anything else to watch or, or listen to. Um, and that's so it's just a consequence of really a technology failure of being unable to enforce limitations on copying. Um, and it's only been a sort of brief moment in time where this has been true. It's been like 12 or 13 or 15 years of Netflix and Spotify, but NFTs let us go back to creating one or more provably verifiable copies of a piece of digital creativity, a picture, words, video, song. And the buyers can then own it again and can resell it. So we're really just back to the way art and, and digital and creativity's been for thousands of years. Yeah. And so it is it's that arc of the story that makes me believe that that ownership of digital items will take off. And I think it will be enormous. I think we will revert to an ownership economy around creativity. Um, I can't tell you exactly when or how, but I'm, I have high conviction that humans yeah. want that. And so uh, Dapper sells NFTs and they've got a couple of different products. They have um, one partner with the NBA where they take great moments from games, like um, you know a three point or a dunk or a block and uh, buy a particular player. And that is packaged up into an NFT a moment and you buy it and you own it there's certain numbers of them there's certain series of them like baseball cards or basketball cards and they have different rarities scarcity different value collectability you can collect them in sets you can use them in games and so it's you know baseball card model um for basketball and that was the first uh sports nft product
0: nice and i think like there's a lot of interesting things you touched on there right just for but are like, oh, why NFTs? Why is it any of this stuff worth? You know, it it also enables a certain level of you know, new ownership primitives and rights, not just rights, just a way for the creator to basically say, Oh, I know how much of these are out there, and I don't rely on Spotify and the government to enforce it for me, right? That that for us is really the key, key ingredient here in that we've always kind of got in got in on is that like, well, the creator can actually doesn't have to worry about anything else. They just create the NFT. They can see the entire provenance of sales. They can maybe even, we, we've, you know, full disclosure, we as angel investors, we've invested in a couple of things out there. Uh, and the thing that really excites us on that front is when you can program rules, even around royalties for these folks, so that if there is a resale, this is like, this is the new degrees of freedom around this economy, right? So it's not even, I, I, I would, yes, and you're like, we're going back because we're going back to that pre, you know, opening the floodgates or Pandora's box, we want to call it, where now suddenly you just had no choice, but everyone's going to copy your work. But we're going back to that, but we're also adding programmability <laughs> around it as well. And that, I think, is a really powerful thing. And I, this is why, again, if I had the yes and your thesis, that's, that kind of stuff is what really makes me stand up and take note and be like, okay, there's an entire, there's millions of creators who either could say, yeah, actually, no, they, they don't even have the choice to say zero royalties. Or some royalties. It's just no. It's not even a choice. So enabling more degrees of freedom enables more like economic states to be inhabited, basically, and in, in, in kind of the way we think about this. And that I think really
1: going back to your point around NFTs is like that's what maybe what we would call the holy grail there. Yes, you're uh you're giving the master class, the advanced class. I was giving the one o one, but you're on like three o one. And it actually is um, of unknown consequence how interesting this innovation is. So if you think about intellectual property from in its physical form, whether it's it's a watch or a piece of artwork or a photograph, it really doesn't change meaningfully after you buy it. I mean, maybe it ages a little bit. In some cases, that's good, like a bottle of wine. And in, in a watch, sometimes it, it's aging as interesting as the dial color changes a little bit or, um, or, or the bevel, bezel does, but, but in most, pieces of creativity, it doesn't really change over time. But software, which is what NFTs are, can be programmed to change, right? We talk a little bit about buying a, um, an in-game item in a video game, like a sword or a gun, and maybe it improves over time or gets worse over time. But, you know, maybe the sword, you slay a dragon and that sword, you know, is now enchanted. And so it has more value. It's even more rare. And we could write um, write the code behind that NFT to to change. Also, we could we could make it become more rare or have it add new properties. The longer you hold it, uh, so if if you if the same owner has had it for two years, it evolves into something more rare to encourage you to be a long term collector. So we're just barely seeing these dynamic NFTs come to market, but I am equally as excited as you are about what this unlocks because that's a new level of creativity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because I look around, like, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the big platforms that get the centralization, um, you know, centralization risk and critique. They're the obvious ones. But then there's like lesser known ones all throughout the, all throughout the internet. You know, we're talking about, I'm not trying to insult Etsy, but, you know, I have friends who have done, who've done crafty things, what have you. And then all of a sudden, one day people are like, actually, no, you can't access the platform something you you made something too racy or whatever right but it's like right. somebody still wants that right it's like under, under what jurisdiction so there's like a whole bunch of these things that now can just open up and um i think the dynamic one as well just side note for me being a kid who grew up playing diablo and diablo 2 i'm like oh man that would have been so much cooler <laughs> right with <But>, you know, <laughs> if yeah. i could at least know what what the toys were and how many of them there were and how could they evolve and i can have a liquid market around it that would have been fantastic instead i'm stuck here playing this multiplayer game and hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hey, can we
1: pause for just one second? Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, getting in, coming out of that, too, you know, we've really focused on the thesis behind Dapper Labs, really dug in a little bit on the thesis behind NFTs. Um, one thing that I remember you mentioning that I think maybe you're becoming a little bit uh, uh, mildly famous for is at least that video from Masari's making the rounds, so that you're the, the evidence-based investor and I kind of fill in the, the, I guess, the counter part of that as versus those who kind of invest for this kind of what they want to see in the world or need to see, right? You're kind of just like, actually, I'm really looking more at the evidence. But that also is being in this game kind a of little bit. You, you, at the same time, there are certain assumptions, right? When you come into a, a deal or a team or an area where you're like, well, for this to actually have the kind of outcome where it would be a fund returner or or even more, maybe it fundamentally alters the structure of the economy in some way. It creates a new industry. Some things must be true. So I wanted to, you know, cast even behind Dapper Labs or any other one you wanted to pick. You know, what kind of what kind of things would have to be true for these to be like just like fund-returning, world-changing investments? What does that look like?
1: Well, first, there have been a few, right? And so, like crypto's been around, you know, broadly you know, 2009, 2010, uh, Bitcoin and 2014, Ethereum white paper. So, you know, call it a decade or more where many of us have been talking about the same things. Like these are decentralized ledgers, they're programmable money, they're alternative stores of value, they're hedges against inflation, they're um, decentralized tech platforms that are gonna compete with Google or AWS. Um, but it, it's sort of, sort of easy to catch the bug about what they can be and, and say that they will be. But I don't have the conviction of being able to take a concept and declare over the time of a venture fund, it will be that way. Um, in fact, I think timing is something that we are notoriously, as humans, terrible at predicting. We either over or underestimate, which is might will be useless. And so I'm just not interested in trying to be a timing predictor. It's not what I'm trying to do, which is also why I don't like try to predict price because I'm not a price predictor. I can't tell you what the price of these digital assets will be tomorrow or or 10 years from now. So what what I'm looking at is what is made possible by the innovation, what developers are adopting it, what useful creations are they making with it? And are those creations being adopted? And if all of that's true, then you start asking like, okay, and what will that be worth? How does it capture value? Is that the most interesting layer of the stack that will capture the most amount of that value? So what we've had though over most of a decade is what this could be and not what it is. However, there have been massive venture returns in the space, not um uh you know many hundreds of dig- diff- different digital assets that have had really huge returns, but over the course of a long time we can look at something like Coinbase, which makes sense, you know, incredible public public company with um let's see I haven't haven't looked uh, today, but obviously they've had huge yeah. price appreciation yeah. with their, you know, $34 billion company. Right. Um, and um, and they are, you know, number one exchange in the U.S. for trading digital assets, plus some more things. They've got a layer two and a mm-hmm. wallet. And so really a lot of promise. We can look at Ethereum, which, you know, as of today is a, um, I don't know, 270, $280 billion creation. Right, um, incredible uh, compute platform that mm-hmm. that pulls some fees in. Um, so like good. these are enormous. If you invested mm-hmm. in them early, you have an incredible venture return. So they're possible. Um, but there's not hundreds or thousands that over the course of a long period of time, five, six, seven, eight years, have maintained their their sort of uh, value mm-hmm. like this. So we look for for ones that will. And, and that's why I say I'm an evidence based investor. I'm, I'm typically not making seed bets. I'm making more series A bets where there's some demonstration of adoption, either by developers or consumers or enterprises. And we can look at that and say, all right, now what happens? How does the TAM get bigger? How does adoption get bigger? So um, I spent a lot of time looking at that. But what's interesting is most people don't. You either have high certainty of your convictions without looking for any evidence, or you're not looking at the evidence. And, And I think most people in venture right now are not looking for evidence of crypto adoption but there is a lot of information to look at. And there, there are, you know, there, there's a lot of data that shows this is interesting. Yeah. So, um, so that's why it's, uh, it, that's the focus.
0: Oh, I think that makes a lot of sense. You touched on a couple of things which actually take us into our next subject, which is, you know, a lot of these things, you mentioned Bitcoin, you mentioned Ethereum store value. These things also, a lot of them touch the financial system and they reimagine the financial system in various ways, which ends up, you know, butting them up against regulation and so i think one of the other things you you've been kind of really cognizant of and influential on is you know and i think everyone needs to be doing this anyone who's an american VC in crypto needs to be doing this but just getting out there and really just making a not necessarily a case just making being a little loud about the fact that uh american american innovation in the space is probably going to be a little bit you know it's going to be it's going to maybe start to lag, right? Just because of what we're seeing, because people will sit there and, you know, they have the primitives to reimagine the financial system and go after massive dams that are reinvented and reconstructed in new phase spaces of opportunity. And so I wanted to ask you then, uh, just to get in a little bit deeper than some of the other things I've heard you talk about. Um, uh, what have you, what have you maybe seen in the last 12 months among entrepreneurs who have been imagining this and are they, where are they looking to start companies? Where are the hotbeds of activity? Right. Because it's I myself, I'll tell you, I've had a couple of folks, you know, had an Estonian founder who moved everything out of America and, and actually reincorporated Estonia. I had some folks move out of uh, out of America into Switzerland. Right. So that's just a rote level. But you, you know, you folks, you, you, you have a really broader view. So I'm curious
1: to hear your opinion on that. It's um it's interesting that, it, you know, I think you you do us a good service by pointing out that the sort of most obvious use case for a decentralized ledger application is something related to financial financial industry, whether that's money transfer, cross-border payments, um, just payments in general, small dollar or big dollar, you know, micropayments or large transactions. It just has so many financial implications early in its use case. And the problem with that is that's one of the most regulated industries in the world. So when tech comes to market, if we look back at the history of tech, almost always it's releasing an innovation that really doesn't have an early nexus with regulation. I mean, maybe that's certainly not true in biotech and and medical devices, which which does have early nexus with regulation, but just about everything else in software doesn't. I mean, maybe a little bit more of late, like self-driving cars, but if you're building a warehouse robot, just not a lot of regulation to worry about or a drone, um, or if you're building enterprise software company that helps the, uh, the um, accounting department like do better work, or um, you're building like Figma, this cool collaborative uh, design tool, like you just don't have to have a whole regulatory staff help you figure yeah. out what's going to happen. Very much. So. But if you are making something that touches the financial industry, you do. So this is a new concept for software companies that like in their very earliest days, 5, 10, 15 people have to talk to lawyers and hire regulatory expertise to figure out how do I bring this company to market without you know ending up in jail or getting fined. And so that slows it down. And um, it does allow also though for a geographic arbitrage where some jurisdictions, as you point out, are being more welcoming to the sort of financial use cases of crypto from a regulatory standpoint than others. And it's sad to me to be true, but it is true, that today outside the U.S. is way more favorable to crypto founders trying to start companies by providing them some protection, some clarity about if you do this, you won't go to jail. You won't be visited by the, you know, by the state who's upset with you trying to innovate. But the U.S. is not one of those jurisdictions. It is a jurisdiction today where if you are launching financially oriented blockchain applications or anything with a token, there is no clarity about whether you're allowed to or not. And you run extremely high risk for doing so. You can be sued or go to jail or pay big fines. So real easy calculus, founders don't wanna go to jail, don't wanna pay big fines. They just wanna innovate, not try sure. and do anything wrong. What do you do? Go to a jurisdiction that says here, you do this stuff, you're not doing anything wrong. So where, where yep. do we have that? We have that in a lot of places. We have that in UK. We have that in the EU, as you point out. We have it in Singapore, um, even Hong Kong is, is friendly to crypto. We have it in the Far East. More and more jurisdictions are saying, "Well, if the U.S. is not going to attract these entrepreneurs, we're happy to." Because entrepreneurs, what do they do? They make efficient companies, they create jobs, um, they create wealth. So that's where we are today. And um, I think, I think crypto needs to be regulated when it touches the financial rails. And uh, but but you just need a, a reasonable path of, of clarity to get there. And for a bunch of you know unfortunate reasons, the U.S. isn't one of them. So just like you're seeing. We're seeing a lot of exciting innovation happening outside the U.S. Some are, well, I would say many are U.S. teams that have left or are just decentralized and spread out, but they're not living in the U.S. The headquarters are not in the U.S. I think we've made 105 investments as a firm since 2015, and and more than 40% of them are outside the U.S., headquartered outside the U.S. So that's going to continue. It's accelerating now. Um, Me and the other investors make frequent trips outside the U.S. to meet teams and that's just how it is. That's okay, though. We have a global global world, and you can build software anywhere. Yeah, and I think
0: this was all a setup just to ask to get to, you know, to, uh, I think, one of the hot topics that deeply intersects with regulation, which is uh, real-world assets. So I wanted to take a second and ask you, before we get into that intersection, do you have a real-world assets thesis? Because I feel like I can't go to any crypto event without running into one.
1: Yeah, totally. So let's just talk about what that is because not every one of your listeners may know what we mean by this. Uh, So what we're talking about here is taking uh, either physical products in the real world or financial products in the real world and putting them on the blockchain. So they're purchasable on the blockchain. So we have some examples of that. One, you've heard people talk about taking like an apartment building, a piece of real estate and tokenizing it and putting it on the blockchain. So people could buy maybe Fractions of ownership in that um, apartment building, but, but transact through tokens, through a wallet on the blockchain. Another example might be like taking a treasury bill and putting it on the blockchain so that someone who has a wallet with a bunch of Bitcoin or USDC in it can buy treasury bills um, on chain. Why would you want to do this? Is a question that most non you know, crypto people would ask. So um, I think we do have a thesis but let's give a real example, a real interesting example of, of one. One would be, well, why would you want to take um, traditional financial assets, a, a mutual fund, um, a, a municipal bond, or um, you know a treasury bill and put it on the blockchain? Those things are really liquid, very easy to buy almost anywhere in the world. Like probably T-bills are like the easiest asset to buy in the world, so many places you could buy it. Why would you put it on the blockchain? Well, here's one reason why. It's it's because there is net new demand to buy T-bills. Well, on chain, um, why? Well, uh, last I looked, there was about $24 billion of total value sitting in DAO treasuries. For those people who don't know, when you create a new crypto protocol or a blockchain, you often reserve a bunch of the tokens you're creating into a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, where as the price of that Token goes up, you're essentially reserving a whole bunch of economic value to be used later to give grants to ecosystem developers, to, to pay salaries for the people who work on the technology, to pay third-party developers to build. Um, so you reserve a bunch of economic value. That sits essentially in a treasury, just like um, you know, a company has a bunch of cash or investments in their treasury. Those That's new wealth that was created from zero at the time the token was created. And almost all of those um, those treasuries are sitting in, well, they, they're they all sitting in digital assets. In most cases, the native token or Ethereum or Bitcoin. Well, those are really volatile assets. So if you've created a lot of wealth and your future of your business depends on it, you'd like to put it in maybe some less volatile assets, like, I don't know, 5% a year T-bills. But you can't because you'd have to, convert it all into fiat, take it off chain, go to a bank or Cantor Fitzgerald or something and buy a bunch of T-bills. And that's just not possible because the assets need to remain on chain so they're auditable and so the Dow and the community members can see. So if you turn T-bills on chain, I think immediately you have $24 billion of incremental demand. I'm not saying it's all gonna go immediately into T-bills, but there is net new demand for traditional financial assets on chain so there's a thesis for you about why you should bring yeah, real yeah. world assets traditional to- traditional financial products on chain
0: yeah no i i love it because that's the thing with a lot of these is that you have if you just think of them from and again we mentioned this earlier i'm not a finance guy you're not a finance guy but if you're just thinking about even the most bare minimum by portfolio management you really don't want to be staring at your dow wallet going like oh it's a uh, 90 our native token and 10 percent bitcoin <laughs> right and yes. then and then if you then take the clip side of that what does that look like in the real world well if you're like you know if you're the in the cfo's office in pfizer there's a person there who is, and i've only recently I learned this in like the last five years Right, this is, like, this is new to me it's like oh there's an entire like treasury management division within that guy's office who's sitting there and saying like well obviously we're not going to sit on 100 us dollars with our <laughs> right with our, with our balance sheet and i'm like huh well that makes sense and so we live in a world currently where that fellow can go and access any T bill anywhere or any, honestly, any, any kind of kind of treasury reserve, of any currency that he wants or and diversify and any, almost any stock, any, you know, any, any equity, whatever. And we have on, on chain, a world that's not at all represented, re- representative of that access. So that's like, that makes a lot of sense.
1: And so I just looked at the numbers. So there's currently $25.5 billion in, t- in treasuries, uh, sorry. billion in Dow treasuries, just for clarity. The number one that's tracked is optimism. It's a five and a half billion dollar treasury. And that's hundred percent of it is in the OP token, super volatile, right? So if it was easy for them to take 10% of that and put it in 5% a year T-bills, would the, would the Dow vote to do that and lock in a 5% return for, you know, $500 million. Of the treasury, maybe, yeah, maybe. it's definitely worth asking.
0: And I think, like, really, what you and I are talking about has become like a technological efficiency argument. So I also wanted to get your opinion here. Do you think that it, you've been in the space, you know, quite a bit? Do you see, do you see technical efficiency going to be? Is that enough of a case for blockchains to gain adoption in these real world assets, or will regulators really, like, globally, have to step in and help create
1: markets to drive this? So personally, I think if you have an asset that is already super liquid and easy to buy, why does the creator or the supplier of that asset want to go put it on chain? If the argument is, well, it makes it slightly cheaper to buy, so you don't have to pay the middleman, it's technically more efficient, that feels to me like a much less compelling reason than um, if you say to them, well, there's a whole lot of net new demand created by going here. If you have an asset that is super illiquid, like an apartment building, And you'd like to fractionalize it. Well, tokenizing it um, gives people a compelling reason to buy into that fraction because it's liquid. You could sell it later. Like I I could buy a fraction of an apartment building now. Um, Let's put REITs aside for a minute. But let's say I have a friend who's investing in an apartment building and says, do you you want to put $10,000 into this apartment building? I have no idea when you're going to get your money out. You know, I have no plans to sell it. And it's gonna be complicated for you to go try to find a buyer of your $10,000. But if that was on chain and, and it was liquid and it had a you know, 24 hour a day, seven day a week market, then we would all know what the value of that apartment building is in real time. And I could, you're bringing liquidity to an illiquid asset. That to me also is a compelling reason to to bring things on chain. So those are just two, two good reasons, I think why it should be done. And it is being done, um, we've seen, entrepreneurs bringing traditional financial instruments on chain, bringing physical real world assets on chain, people looking at, um, you know, works of art, real estate, um, you know, you, you name it. Yeah. And then I think, uh, and being in our
0: space too, I think that always just opens up at least, you know, on some of the things you touched on, you're going to touch houses. There's probably going to have to be a regular comes in and say, here's how that has to look. There might oh. actually, even already, you know, there might, there might be rails out there to do it, right? It's just about making sure that we build them in that way. And now that we've kind of dovetailed into re- regulation, one of the most interesting things that I really wanted us to finish up on is that you have had some, uh, you've had some, made some public comments in some of your fireside chats and panels what have you around AI. And I also think that uh, coin fund as a fund has a really interesting thesis around you know, crypto and AI, because I'll tell you probably Three years ago, maybe the first time I heard someone come in and say, like, oh, wow, crypto and I, there's something there. And I was just like, what does that even mean? Because at this, at this time, this was the time when you would see, like, you know, this was the ICO, a little bit after the ICO era where people are, like, putting together landing pages that had, well, well, this is a new startup where we're doing an ICO and it's an AI blockchain play. And I'm like, oh, this is just every single one of the, <laughs> the buzzwords thrown yeah. onto the same page, right? But, you know, we had... The OpenAI really put this argument front and center for us. We had a, recently did an episode with the CEO of Block Science, who does a lot of good consulting work on tokenomics and governance throughout the ecosystem. And Amber Case is a board member on MetaGov. They also do the same thing. They put out standards, new token standards, all this kind of stuff for the ecosystem. And one thing that became apparent when I listened to you, uh, basically, is that everyone in the space who's thought about the interplay of those things really has honed in on it's really not going to be a great future if there are five to six companies that own all the compute in the world to run this stuff and so i wanted to ask you before we even get into the ai regulation or anything like that uh what do you see as the investable opportunity here right because we have these behemoths that have data centers distributed data centers all throughout the world there's huge energy energy demands they have prefer uh, they have preferential gpu access. What do, what do you see as the invisible opportunity in the space?
1: This is a great example where actual need and philosophy, the sort of one's philosophical view about a space are, are colliding nicely together. So there's a philosophic, so philosophical view, which you just pointed out, which is, boy, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a great future. If the future of humani- humanity is AI-based, and that is controlled by five or six companies that found, feels like oppressive to me and not a future I'd like to see happen. Um, so can crypto play a role in that? Well, we think so. Uh, for a couple of reasons today, the reason we have super dominance of, of AI among a small number of companies is, as you point out, the compute power, really the GPU power needed to train an LLM today is estimated at like five to $10 billion in CapEx. So there's only a few companies that can afford that. And OpenAI, this is why they partnered with Microsoft and you've got Google and Amazon and Apple and Facebook and and just a few others, But but, but that's about it. So can we bring down the cost to train LLMs? Sure, there are artisanal architects who are working on making the training costs less, but we also could ask the world, to throw their unused GPUs into a decentralized network and create an alternative platform for training LLMs that you pay a couple tokens to to use and those who have put their GPU into the network get some tokens out as they're used. So there's like an economic efficiency that happens of taking unused GPU power and throwing it in a network, but also it's a network that can be owned by all the participants. Um, So that feels like more Um, you know, democratically fair, but one that is just more open to anyone who wants to train. You don't have to make a deal with Microsoft to train your LLM or pay Amazon. You just pay in tokens and and use this and that should drive costs down. So we've invested in Jensen, a company that is bringing a decentralized um, training network of GPUs to market. Um, And that's just one example. Another might be this thing that bothers me the most about, OpenAI and and the other LLMs, they've all basically trained on our works. They've yes. sent these bots out to scrape the internet and put it all into some giant corpus and they trained on it without any compensation to any of us for using our words, our images, um, uh, our intelligence. Um, and the, the, the media companies are really angry about this, right? The New York Times and, and others are suing OpenAI and AI, OpenAI is settling or at least writing economic contracts with content providers saying, yeah, sorry, we didn't pay you before, but well, we still need to train. And so we'll pay you a little bit, but they're only paying the the, the loudest and biggest voices, the content owners, and they're not paying us. They're not paying the rest of the internet, but they should. And, and just by the fact that they're willing to pay the, the large ones we're suing them means that they they agree that we should be compensated, but yet they're not compensating us. And so one could imagine a decentralized data collective where any of us could put our, our websites, our articles, our images into trainable data sets and get paid in tokens for doing so, maybe proportional to the amount of content we put in. And then any any LLM that wants to train on it has to pay uh, a fair price to, to use our data. That feels super um, economically fair, but also like just the right thing to do rather than like trying to get away and argue with, oh, this is all fair use, which I don't think it is, but I'm not a copyright. <laughs> uh lawyer but but we will find out very soon as yeah. there are a bunch of cases pending. So there's just two examples of why I think web3 brings us a saner and more interesting future for AI. Yeah,
0: you know, I, I I really like that. I want I rarely rarely do this. I don't like doing it, but I am going to devil's advocate a couple of your positions I'm interested in what your take on this. So I'll Please. kind of set the stage. Um you're familiar with Zcaf. Yeah. Of course, yeah, the other privacy um the uh, privacy-based blockchain. So one of the one of my good friends who's also building a company in that space I won't name him but um he his his theory of change on privacy has always been that if you want to build something like a privacy based blockchain you're going to appeal to approximately 0.05% of the population is obsessed with privacy uh because it's there just aren't that many people who care if Google and Microsoft and whatever you can go out there and put their data in a database and train models on it they just at the end of the day okay or if, or if someone sees that they paid you know 3 quid for a you know a coffee at the at, in the east end or something right like okay what w- whatever so his whole thing is very much you actually need to look at use cases in the world that benefit from privacy and build for those find the people who want to achieve those ends and kind of do those and so I wanted to ask you a bit like with this, with these two examples that you mapped out, how do you see incentives in those in sort of like an open data economy, or even giving people ownership over the data? How do you how do you see these shifting over time? And I'll be I'll be more specific. I'll give you like every what I mean is, I there are so many folks I've seen who are just like you know what? I don't actually care. The Netflix knows all these things about me and that what I watch and all that. I just don't care. All right, like what do you think? Kind of if you prognosticate a little bit, allow yourself to. What do you, how do you see these gaining traction or mindshare as a thing? Do we need almost like an activist bottom up movement or something that says, actually wake up, this is happening to you, or is there some market-based or you know incentive-based thing?
1: Yeah, I, I completely appreciate your question because I agree that in the example you gave about do people care about privacy of their data, largely the answer is no. They don't care about that. So I I agree with that. But I'm not suggesting this is a privacy argument. This is an economic argument. Like uh, all of our words that any of us have written on the internet have been scraped and trained by companies that are now worth tens of billions of dollars and none of us got paid for it. Um, So I'm not saying that you're going to have, I don't know how many millions of websites there are, but the you know the tens of millions of websites on the internet, you're not gonna have all those people waking up and suing OpenAI and saying, I wanna get paid. But if there was a model of a data collective, it would be opt-in. And there are a lot of companies that host the words that we all write on the internet, like Wix and Cloudflare, well, they're not a host, but um, Google, yeah. um, uh, Squarespace, right? Shopify, mm-hmm. uh, they could, they're the first places that a data collective would go and say, do you want to opt in your entire user base? And we'll give you tokens for every page that we scrape. And, uh, and so it could be an economic benefit to people who are already publishing. And if they don't care, they just get paid like a couple tokens drop in their wallet for the fact that they're letting their webpage be scraped, but they also could opt out. Also, I think that, um, we have a head tail phenomenon where the more words you write the more images you own, the more valuable that is to the AI systems to train. So therefore the people who are the bigger publishers, if you will, media owners on the internet, are more interested maybe in taking some action. And and I think we can see that. I mean, the one example I like to give, and I don't think he's got a problem with me using this over and over again, is, you know, if you ask OpenAI about venture capital, it's got a bunch of answers for you. Well. The person I know who's written more about venture capital on the internet is Fred Wilson. He's been doing it for more than a decade. He's got I don't know m- more than 10,000 posts because I remember the time he celebrated his 10,000th. I'm pretty sure that he like single-handedly helped train OpenAI, you know, for the answers about venture capital and they're not they're not paying him. So so you could see somebody uh, who's an expert in a small vertical having an economic incentive to opt in.
0: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good way to put it. I'm really curious to see how it plays out because I very much want people to understand the value of their own data. And you know, kinda nail it on the head. Right? I'd say I would go even one step further than you under know, the compensation angle As I'd say for me, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just idealizing here, but for me it's even about consent right like getting yeah, at least having the ability to even consent because it's not an ability you even have in the current system right and then maybe once i consent i can see what the market price is right yes, that that would yes. be fantastic but even just give me a heads up that it's happening right that'd be fantastic um, totally so david we covered a lot of ground here we covered you know your you coming into venture we covered a little bit about your your evidence based investor background uh, the way you approach things the way you approach the craft the what you're looking for in returns, but then we also dovetail a little bit into your philosophy as well. It we'll wouldn't be back into the AI stuff. So I wanted to just, you know, round us out here and say, um, covered a lot about you. Tell founders a bit more about yourself. What's you're interested in a coin fund? You know, what's getting your attention? What keeps you interested in reading up at night, right? If it's 2016 and you just discovered crypto, what's the next sort of frontier you're looking at there that keeps you interested?
1: You know, it's, we're led to these frontiers by entrepreneurs. There's a lot of activity in still um, the acceleration and scalability of blockchains. This has led us to a lot of stuff around ZK, zero knowledge, uh, making it easier for developers to adopt zero knowledge proofs as part of their application, which gives them scalability, acceleration. Um, uh, so I would say it's an area that we see more and more activity. Um, Gaming is an area we still see lots of, uh, web three games coming to market. Uh, you'll see literally many hundreds coming to market in the first half of next year, maybe even more than a thousand. So we're tracking that, um, there's a fair bit of stuff, still an opportunity around regulatory compliant exchanges. Um, we've made a lot of investments in user experience, improving that. So wallets and wallet infrastructure, um, this, uh, real world assets or you know, to- tokenized uh, financial products um, is, is an area we're spending a lot of time on. Even still stable coins, there's opportunity around. Um, and then bringing more of the tech stack for developers to sit on top of blockchains and to make developer experiences richer. Um, so I would say we're, we're comfortable uh, all over the landscape of, of, of Web3 um, but really focusing on examples where there's some consumer developer or enterprise traction.
0: Got it. Well, you heard it here. So like, I, I like to ask this question of, of investors we have on the show, just so that there's a, one record somewhere of the kinds of things that you will even take away us, Because let me tell you, when you're when, when we're on this side of the table, sometimes you just see too many things. So you heard it here first, folks. Come, come to David and Coin Funds with gaming. <laughs> Sorry about that. We'll let it Yeah, no out. problem.
1: <laughs> but uh, bring, but yeah. bring us your, your, your you know great founders fo- focused on really interesting and scalable Web3 projects. We've got seed investing program. We have a venture investing program. We have a liquid investing program. So we'd love to meet. We just want to meet the best founders to come to us.
0: Yep. There you go. And then if they come to you, where can they find you?
1: Yep. Well, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us at coinfund.io. Um, there's contact information on the website and would love to meet people. So I appreciate you having me on. It's a... We had a great conversation at the summit um we believe very much in the things that you guys stand for and promulgate and i'm glad we could keep chatting thanks a lot for your time
0: david and that means a lot to us we really appreciate it
1: hope i can come back to the summit next year we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the ownership economy don't forget to like and subscribe